Hello, hello, welcome to this, uh, the fourth review episode from the Book of Boba Fett. My name is Sean Peterbudge, and this is an adjunct offshoot of the weekly watch list. I'm obviously going to chat The Gathering Storm, which is funny given that this podcast started life as a Carlton show. Uh, the Gathering Storm as a title um, would tickle Carlton fans of a particular age. It was the season review VHS for 1992. The Gathering Storm. Uh, this particular version of The Gathering Storm is directed by Kevin Trancheron. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and written again, of course, by John Favreau, who is the show creator, show runner, uh, creative force behind the whole uh, thing. And he's obviously written the episodes to date and continues on here with episode four. Um, the plot of The Gathering Storm is thus... Uh, last week, we saw Boba's alliance with the Tuscans meet a tragic end. The mayor of Mos Espa pick a side in the looming conflict and loyalty both challenged and attained. This week's episode was all about consolidating the themes and character of chapters one through three, which means spending more time in the past while laying a groundwork for what's soon to come. Boba's back-to-tank dreams continue, his reflections of the past, how he got here, and probably how they're going to inform what he does next, taking centre stage. And the events of this particular episode are principally built around Boba's efforts to piece together his life, somewhat literally, as he seeks to reclaim items of personal significance for him and, of course, the audience. Having lost his Tuscan tribe, Boba wanders the desert in solitude, eventually finding the left-for-dead figure of Fennec Shand. This, of course, is a beat from the first season of The Mandalorian, where Shand came undone in a skirmish with Din Djarin, and recognising her as a potentially um, valuable ally, and seeing that she is barely alive, Boba takes Shand to be seen to, in effect, saving her life. The two bounty hunters quickly form an uneasy alliance, their commonalities more than compensating for their lack of familiarity with one another personally, and Boba's offer to Shand is a simple one. He needs help to recover his prized asset, of course, the Slave One. A little bit more on that later. Um, It is being held, of course, inside Jabba's palace, somewhere that he can't breach, being that it's heavily fortified not only by a giant door, but obviously... Bobber's, uh, sorry, um, Jabba's old or former army. So there's a mission Shand offers to help so long as her debt is paid if they're successful. And once the recovery mission becomes complicated, because of course it does, a scuffle becomes a shootout. With her debt paid, Shand reconsiders parting ways with her new friend, eager to tag along, let things play out, and learn a little bit more about the legendary underworld figure. It is here that Fett crystallises his vision for his own future and makes another pitch to Shand. It is his want to recast the order of things and to bring a change to a world that he'd been a part of for so long. Shand, as we know, is interested, but there are others who'll need convincing. And so, in the present, Boba pitches his plan to the families of Tatooine's crime syndicates, saying he has no interest in their operations or their turf. So the pitch is this. Join in a fight against the coming Pike Syndicate, or abstain from the conflict altogether. But make sure to pick one, because it's one or the other. So the overview, I suppose, ultimately, of the fourth episode of this series, I do find that sometimes, given now we've got actually a growing sample, you think about what they've done to date, you know, both both seasons of The Mandalorian, we've had uh, WandaVision, Loki, Falcon of the Winter Soldier, and Hawkeye. This is kind of where a lot of these Disney Plus shows have run into a bit of trouble, when the surprises and the sheen of the world wear off and the story has to become... You know, the, the story itself has to become a really compelling part of the show. Now we've settled into the world, 
now it's it's got to be about the narrative. It's the same problem that you know sequels generally have when they establish a really compelling world and characters. Well, yeah, taking us back to that world is fun and it's fantastic. Here we go, another adventure with characters A, B, and C. Fantastic. But then after you know the pleasantries and the and the movie gets going and usually we're we've got a fun opening act. Well, what's the plot? So you've hooked us with these characters and with this world which we've shown a liking for. Now, what are you telling us? What's the story? And it sometimes feels like with the Disney Plus shows taking on Marvel and Star Wars in particular, it feels a lot of the time like they're in you know movie making mode still. And in each TV show actually only has about two odd hours of a story to tell, but they decide to stretch it out over four or five hours to become a TV series. And you, you, sometimes they, it really, it really feels obvious. Like Mando did this a bunch of times. There'd be episodes where nothing would happen on the narrative side, like nothing of substance or interest at all, nothing to drive the show forward. But the episode would be saved by some spectacle you know, or a particular moment of brilliance or fan service. Like there's an episode in um, in season two of The Mandalorian. Is it called The Passenger, I think, when he gives, he ferries the fish man um, or he's taking that fish guy to, to meet up with his wife, um, something he doesn't accomplish in that episode. And they obviously get waylaid on that ice planet and they end up coming across uh, the Krikna, which is this classic monster movie moment and something inherent to all the Star Wars movies and we're going to talk about that later in the chicken salads but they have the big showdown with the the ice spider and as a fan of Star Wars that was really cool because that was a design initially Ralph McQuarrie had come up with for a creature that would inhabit um, uh, Dagobah and so it was cool like it popped up these little you know it was very alien as well the classic horror movie moment these creatures and the egg started hatching and you went that's a it's a Krikna. And it was a, it was a great sequence. It was exciting. It was well done. They attacked his ship. And, and you kind of went, that moment saved an otherwise pretty poor episode, really. Because the actual crux narratively of that episode was just wheel spinning. It was 30, 35, 40 minutes of just nothing to the actual overall bigger picture of the show. But saved by that, that one moment. You know, WandaVision had that as well, that... Once the mystery wore off and the really interesting framing device kind of started to reveal itself and the sheen of that, you know, became less glossy, the show somewhat grudgingly kind of settled into trying to unpick its narrative. You kind of went, uh, what's, what's happening here? Oh, that initial foray into this world was really engaging and interesting and what is this and what does it all mean? And then it became, oh, is that what it means? Mm, okay. Hmm. And that's what these shows do. You know, Loki did it, Falcon and the Winter Soldier did it. They feel, I think, that, or they get comfortable that merely dropping us back into the world, and particularly the aesthetic of a world involving characters A, B, and C, you know, they know that we love those, and they kind of coast by on set design or costume design or musical cues. And that's enough to kind of get us to the next episode because we've got eight of these to tell. And you're sort of going, no, well, why don't you just come up with eight episodes worth of story? where the narrative is always driving the plot. You know, Trey Parker's got this fantastic um, uh, storytelling sort of mantra, which is but and therefore. And it's, it's look it up on YouTube. He explains it very succinctly. A lot of shows operate on, on a um, and 
So they go to the shop and this happens. And then this happens. And then this happens. Whereas Trey Parker's got this really cool, you know, it's, he's been telling fantastic stories. He's been telling them in a really unique way. There's no wonder, you know, no surprise why he's been so successful. But it's, but, and therefore. So this happens, they go to do this, but this happens. So then that creates the next beat. Therefore, this happens. But this happens. And it's always this, the flow of the story is, is really, it is driven entirely by events relating to the plot. And that was obviously their, their bugbear with stuff like Family Guy. Um, and then obviously out of last week's episode, the Vespa gang certainly caused a bit of a stir. And I sort of just wanted to double back around to this because it did stand out as strange at the time, but I certainly didn't take like personal offence to the, the, the design decision and the design language they decided to go for. Like, yeah, it was a bit jarring, but the fact that I kind of, you know, barely mentioned them. I think I mentioned them in passing. Um, sort of tells you what I kind of thought of it. It, it. Like it was, if nothing else, just a bit of a weird production design decision. There wasn't a narrative issue. It was just a bit of a strange. Oh, that's sort of that's weird. I don't. You know, it stuck struck you as kind of a little bit out of place without it being so ridiculously out of place. It it ruined the episode or ruined the moment or anything like that. But it was interesting to kind of see the fallout from that innocuous enough feature of last week's episode and certainly became a, a massive talking point in the aftermath which I kind of found um, you know, amusing to sort of observe that something that how a couple of characters were presented is sort of somewhat incidental particularly given their supporting character at this stage to what is the story currently being told and built to yeah they're, they're going to become significant players in that but like they're not so absurdly presented um, as to you know, burst the whole balloon. So it's it's an interesting sort of situation that um, chicken salads. I think that it was probably the best written episode to date. And in terms of that, I mean dialogue. Um, and that's really for one reason. It's that the messages were really succinctly conveyed via really effective, engaging dialogue. And you know, as I make notes, you know, during the course of an episode, you know create some headings, some bullet points, I found myself actually using these lines of dialogues as headers for these notes because I've long sort of you know spoken when, when we've been talking about Boba Fett and some other shows and, and movies as well is, you know, show don't tell is a really, is a really powerful storytelling tool and I know it's going to sound weird because these are lines of dialogue but they are directly speaking to whatever the theme whatever the emotion, whatever they want to get across, you know, this episode was pretty exposition heavy in a lot of ways because it conveyed a lot of this information via dialogue. But at the same time, I found that dialogue to be really instructive and and character building. So I'll go through a few of the ones that really jumped out at me and obviously the notes that I found or, or made below them. Um, Boba says at, at one point, um, I think he said it's a Fennec Shand. I probably should have noted that down pretty sure he said it to her, um, you can only get so far without a tribe. So his time with the Tuscans didn't just save him, like in a literal sense, but sort of spiritually and, and whatnot, it actually changed him and it changed his perspective. You know, this was a guy who had been loyal to others in the past for so long, you know, without question, he was a gun for hire, a mercenary, but without the safety net of their protection or loyalty in return. So having lived this time with the Tuscans, he now knows 
you know, what to offer, you know, what he's long craved himself, and then by extension of that, what these other people will crave as well. They crave a tribe. They crave a sense of belonging. They crave not just totalitarian leadership. They crave, you know, the respect, two-way respect. And for Boba, it became about this, this sort of mission that he's been on is about changing a culture of selfishness among the self-invested, this criminal underworld. It's, it's a cool idea that bounty hunters, by their very nature, would be isolated. They'd be lone wolves. They'd be suspicious of others. They'd be always looking over their shoulder. And he knows that he, having experienced this, he cannot accomplish what he wants to just on his own as one man. So congregating this group of you know, sympathetic individuals with similar, you know, similarly lived experiences or similar perspectives, or in the case of a Fennec Shan potentially, or um, uh, Chris Tannen, the big Wookiee, you know, they've all lived this really nasty sort of lifestyle. But if they wanted to change, well, change it. And that's what Bob is sort of, you know, setting out to do. He's setting out to kind of reconstruct his corner of the criminal underworld and how it runs and the the, the hierarchy and the like of that, which is which is a cool kind of idea. So this, you can only get so far without a tribe, is recognising that he can potentially drive some change, but he'll need not followers as such, not, not acolytes, but he'll need a tribe to accomplish it. He'll need help. So that was cool. Um, and it actually kind of reminded me, not directly as such, but um, for whatever reason, this popped into my head, but there was that great line in in Batman Begins when, when Bruce Wayne is not yet Batman, but he's trying to find, you know, again, a sympathetic ally. And he recognises Jim Gordon. Obviously, Jim Gordon gave him his coat, um, showed him some some love and some kindness when he most needed it. And he seeks him out. And Gordon, I think, is was he a lieutenant at that stage. And he sneaks into his office and he, you know, puts the stapler to the back of his head. And we're going to do this. We're going to take down um, Falcone. We're going to take down blah, blah, blah. We're going to use the DA's office. We're going to use Rachel Dawes. And he's building a team, Bruce. He's building a team of allies um, to fight the evil. And um, Gordon says to him, you know, you're just one man. And Bruce responds, now we're two. And it's that invitation to, you know, you want to join me because you know you think exactly like I do. And it's, that's a cool kind of beat that I'm not saying Favreau and co are ripped off here, but it, it just reminded me of that, that cool notion of building a crew, building a team of allies and finding people that are like-minded. And um, I, I have enjoyed that about the season so far, even if it's been not a slow burn, but even if it's been a bit um, sort of, you know, uh, so a bit, bit sort of patient to play out. It's been all right. Um, he says, obviously, later on, he has the meeting with the, the five families type thing, um, which we'll touch on again a little bit later on. Uh, and he says, why speak of conflict when cooperation can make us all rich? You know, last week, the huts showed that they understood money, the cost of war, the cost of conflict. And this week, you know, you've got Boba trying to convince others of the same thing, um, you know, fighting amongst themselves for a patch of sand on this one world in the outer rim, is really missing the bigger picture if the big boys of the big Pike Syndicate roll into town. You know, why fight amongst ourselves when all we're going to do is make each other weaker for a bigger threat to come in and just roll us all? So it was that cool kind of, again, him understanding from a lived experience, what is the point? We aren't each other's enemies. 
here in this room, you will think you will think suspiciously of one another. He's had that kind of enlightened moment of no, we're not. That that's you're not you're not looking at the bigger picture here, uh, which I really liked. He was obviously speaking to Fennec Shand in that that uh, segment in the past. And he said to her, how many times you've been hired to do a job that was avoidable if they took the time to think? Uh, how many lives could have been saved? You know, what he's saying is, uh, I'm tired of our kind dying because of the idiocy of others. We're smarter than them. Um, and it was, it's time we took our shot. Again, really, it's, a, it's this cool moment of character growth that this guy that was, you know, um, once a pretty thinly drawn, open to interpretation character, just a cool cool guy in a helmet and some interesting body armor that really you know caught the audience's eye but was not a terribly fleshed out character at all um just seen as a bit of a bit of a badass and you kind of went oh geez you know i'd like to learn a little bit a little bit more about him well even that character now you know seven six or seven years later the growth um has been really profound it's been really cool to kind of observe you know play out in, in a in a truncated um matter on this tv show but we've seen enough to kind of see that what he's gone through has actually changed his perspective and his pitch to fennec shan in this case is appealing to her own lived experiences knowing that she'd experienced you know likely what he has you think about even his dealing with darth vader and empire he's not contracted as such but he's brought in to do a particular thing to recover the millennium falcon um because they want, uh, you know, they want to lure Luke, and they want to, they want to catch Princess Leia, etc. The Empire, and the trade-off for him is, well, if I get that done, I get Han Solo. Jabba the Hutt wants Han Solo, etc. So he thinks he's accomplished that. Okay, all right, this is going to work out well for me. But no, the deal keeps changing, and Vader keeps changing the deal. Now I'm going to actually do this with Han, and maybe he'll die. And that I don't care what that does to you. So it's this, it's this interesting sort of perspective there that, again, he's learned from that. And in a funny way, he's actually almost become, you know, a freelancer. I sort of love it. He's lived that low man on the totem pole. He's earned his way into a better kind of mid-level role. Then he's got himself to a GM position. And he kind of found his professional ceiling, you know, but he's taken all that he's observed and learned from all those experience and um, gone off and kind of now he's doing his own thing. Now he's a, he's a gun for hire. He's a freelancer. You know, he's gone and started up his own shop. It's cool. He's an entrepreneur. Um, he has his sort of Michael Corleone moment, you know, just when I thought I was out, when he says, I was ready to leave hunting behind. Um, and that was a nice moment. He, he was talking about he'd found a tribe, he'd found a people, he found a place where he felt like he belonged. Um, you know, he was enjoying the, the hierarchy of living with the Tuscan Raiders. That was all taken away from him. So this idea that I was ready to leave that. I was ready to forget about this world and to forget about this life and to just go and he would have been happy to kind of just go and do that. But that's taken away from him and he's obviously kind of the inciting incident for what's going to continue to unfold is that had that camp and had that group of Tuscan Raiders that he'd uh, joined up with not been brutally, you know, ruthlessly killed, um, he probably he might have just lived out his days as one of them. And that would have been satisfying for him. It would have been everything that he wanted. And he's actually kind of trying to build again here. He's trying to build a family back up or trying to build, you know, I keep using the word ally, but he's trying to build a, you know, a bit of a, a friendly cartel, if you will, of um, all sorts of various figures to um, stake his claim on, on this particular post. So I think it's I think it's an interesting 
got a line of dialogue there. I, I really like that that sort of moment of self reflection. That yeah, I, I was I would have left this all behind. I would have moved on and um, been happy to do so. Uh, he obviously remarks to Fennec Shand at one point um, when they recovered the slave one that we're going to go into town and um, get it fixed. It needs some work, and he goes, "No, I'll do it myself." Um, he doesn't want to rock up in town and. Uh, Moss Eisley gets a name drop there, but he doesn't want to rock up in town uh, and reveal himself to be alive at that point of view, uh, point in time, sorry, saying there's an advantage to people thinking that you're dead. Um, funnily enough, people probably think Fennec Shand is dead too. And it was cool too. Like, I wondered if that line was a bit meta in that are they talking about kind of making the show as well? Is that there's an advantage to people, the broader audience, there are Star Wars fans, of course, who knew or suspected for a long time, although it wasn't officially in canon, that he had survived and escaped and what was he doing? Okay, we can play with that. But the broader public who probably know the look of the character and, oh, yeah, Boba Fett, yeah, he was in a couple of those movies, he fell into the pit, yeah, okay, I get it. Well, they all just think he's dead. So that gives you a blank slate, a blank canvas to do a lot of stuff that no one would have expected of you because they thought that the character had run his race and there was nothing more to be said about him. So I kind of again wondered if that was that bit of a tip of the hat, potentially to the the possibilities that the showrunners have playing with a character who, for the most part, hasn't had a locked in, you know, existence in canon in the thirty odd eight years since Return of the Jedi, um, or certainly not a widely celebrated, recognised one, uh, which was good. Um, he also said the line, which I kind of I kind of liked. I think it was in all the trailers, and I sort of thought it was funny because again. Is it a nod? I don't know, but um, his very first appearance, of course, in Star Wars was in the dreaded, uh, infamous um, holiday special in a cartoon segment, and it's it's very late 70s. It's not very good, uh, but he did utter the line, which he repeated a few times today. Um, it has to have been a nod to this. Maybe I can help you. I am Boba Fett. So that was spoken by... Um, what was his name? Don Franks was the voice actor who, who first voiced Boba Fett. And the I'm Boba Fett line got a run around a couple times tonight, which was, as I said, just good fun. Because I've always it's always struck me as a strange line reading, but it's kind of like an iconic line reading in Star Wars, just the way he says it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many takes they had or how interested the, uh, the voice director or the voice um, coach was really getting to the crux of what the line was trying to say about the character, but it's, uh, it's got an interesting place in my relationship with Star Wars nonetheless, and to hear him kind of say it in his uh, Maori uh, twang um, got a little bit of a chuckle from me. Um, the Slave One. Of course, the first appearance of the iconic ship in the Book of Boba Fett. It, it uh, did feature naturally in um, Mandalorian, um, by virtue of that you know that past timeline. He needed to reclaim the ship by the time of the Mandalorian. He'd already done that, so we got to see the how and the why he recovered it. Um, but it was cool to I think it's called the the fire spray or something in canon now because. Someone at Disney didn't like the word slave being in a ship used by a nefarious, iconic bounty hunter. They, they thought there was a weird connotation there with, uh, I don't know, African-American black slavery, even though it's set in a fictional world in another galaxy. It's it's not real. So they've decided not to call it the slave one anymore. And the fire spray, I think, is the, the class of the ship. So they're calling it the fire spray. And it's like, it's just dumb. It's called the slave one. 
It's an iconic ship. It's an iconic name. Again, the design's fucking still amazing. Still brilliant. You know, the, the, the sound design's absolutely fantastic. We've got a seismic charge in this episode, which was cool. Um, the, the, the segment of the episode where they actually are trying to reclaim the Slave One from Jabba's palace um, had a little bit of Han and the crew trying to escape on the Falcon from Hoth, you know, when Vader and his snow troopers um, burst into the base and are trying to catch them and they're... There's a firefight on the on the on the um, on the ramp, and they can't. There's a bit of a problem taking off, and they can't quite get away. But they just manage to escape, which was really fun. I like too that. Again, I've spoken in the past about you know, the geography of scenes and using the environment. You know and how the asset you know interacts with that environment is really important. Uh, can you do it in a clever way? Can you do it in a way that sort of doesn't betray a, that sense of geography or doesn't betray? you know, that environment, so to have it in this cramped hangar, and the ship is obviously at that weird 90-degree tilt where it, um, how it lands. Uh, we saw in, in Mando inside the Slave One, which was cool, had that kind of gyroscope, kind of, you know, that's how it righted itself, it tilted back up. Um, so I did like that, I like the staging of the, the actual fight scene and the escape on the ship, which was cool. Um, and importantly too, Fennec Shand was used really well in this, so this was their first skirmish together, in the sort of in a linear you know timeline um and she was shown to be really handy she was a dangerous asset great hand-to-hand fighter um excellent shot so it was good to see her being portrayed as competent like that's important is that she's she's not just there as a kind of a warm body she's actually dangerous and she's helpful it's like she's she's she has some utility she's not just sort of barely escaping, just oh, just just getting out of a bind, just narrowly. She kind of, you know, took on a whole bunch of them, was just pinging them off. It was great. Um, and then later, obviously, we had there was a moment where um, once they've reclaimed the slave one, which was it was a bit brutal of fit when he's uh, he's behind that biker, the speeder bike gang, and he's just picking them off from the air. <laughs> they're, they're just riding through the desert, and he was just shooting them down. Absolutely savage. Loved it. Um, another cool moment which I really, really liked from the episode was the, not so much the scene itself, but just kind of like what it represents in Star Wars. Like an underrated, <clears throat> an underrated like cool element of, of all these movies, you know, like a tenant, if you will, have been the showdowns with like nasty, hungry, you know, you know exotic creatures. You know, here we got the Sarlacc trying to eat the slave one. They go over to out to the Sarlacc to potentially recover his his uh, armor because um, it was obviously peeled off him. He doesn't know that it was peeled off him by the Jowers. He just assumes it was peeled off him in the Sarlacc. But he he goes out to try to recover the armor, not knowing that the Jawas took it and that Cobb Vanth actually has it at this stage. So we might get a little bit more about that. They might backtrack on that a touch. But the Sarlacc is trying to eat the slave one, trying to pull it into the pit. Um, they're sort of fighting it off. It's quite cool. It's, it's well done. But just the actual overall idea of this kind of creature encounter, it was really cool. Like episode one, you had the, was it the goober fish when they were um, in the underwater sort of uh, realm of in Naboo. In episode two, we obviously had the, the big fight in the Geonosian arena. Episode three, I don't think really had one. Um, that just probably didn't have time for one. Episode four had the trash compactor. Uh, episode five had the Wampa and the space slug. A little bit later on, episode six obviously had the Rancor, um, and episode seven had the uh, had the uh, the Rathtars. Um, nothing immediately comes to mind for eight and nine. 
trying to think. Did we have a weird creature in eight and nine? Not, not like I can recall that they fought or was trying to trying to take him out. Uh, I might come back to that. But that was cool. I said I liked it because that's just classic Star Wars. It's just a classic serial, you know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers type kind of thing. Even, you know, the old sort of sword and sandal sort of um, fantastical, you know, Greek mythology type things where they fight the big creature. So that, that was nice to see that get a run around here. I mentioned earlier the Krikna from, from Mando, which was a great scene. Uh, similarly, this is, is nice as well. I mentioned the five families homage, where he's having the meeting at the end with the families of uh, Tatooine. Again, Godfather, little, you know, the political, the mafioso nod there was nice. Um, just more politicking, more kind of world building in that space. And I think, um, I think it was worthwhile. I think it was a cool scene in that Bobber shows himself to be, you know, he's a leader. Um, he outlines what his plan is. He'll he's sort of set the tone as to this is what's going to, what's going to happen, this is what I'm going to do, you're with me, but you're not against me, um, is that agreeable? And I thought it was just a cool, sort of cool dynamic to kind of establish and it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds in the coming and future episodes. Um, Chris Stanton, the, I'm probably not saying that right, but the, the big Wookiee, the big badass Wookiee, uh, it was cool to get a little bit of backstory from him, which was not, not unexpected so much, but it was just an interesting, you know, more character building, more world building. It sounds like he was a bit of a sort of a Maximus style or type, you know, gladiator who fought for sport and eventually won his freedom. Um, so that was a cool kind of thing that he, he obviously you know, probably informs why he's a bit of an angry, angsty kind of guy. But uh, I did like that. I like that the, the show kind of took the 30 odd seconds to kind of make this character a bit richer. He's not just a bounty hunting Wookiee that is this is the muscle and he's going to come on board later on and, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's a different style of Wookiee. We haven't seen a Wookiee like this, you know, really. I've got a glimpse of the warrior-type ones in Episode 3, but we haven't really seen a Wookiee like that. So it was cool that, yeah, they said they took the time to kind of go, this is why he is kind of the way he is. And it's worthwhile because later on when we will see him probably similarly like Boba Fett, uh, Boba Fett, Wanting that sense of family, wanting that sense of belonging to a tribe, not having to be so angry, not having to be so aggressive all the time. Um, so I think that's a cool little character beat that will mean more by season's end. Um, chicken shits, there's really only one, and this is a bit of a caveat, because just the narrative thrust, you know, the first... The, 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 the stuff in the past from this week's episode... As much as I did like it, and as much as I think it laid some groundwork and did some heavy lifting and was largely expositional, it sort of was backtracking maybe at the expense of the story that we want to be told and that we actually need to be told. You know, I think that's a fair question because the story to this point has gotten by just fine, you know, with them teaming up, you know, post that Mando thing, he and Fennec Shan team up. You know, and then Bobber obviously turns up with the Slave One. We know that it was, we can probably you know, assume that he'd parked it somewhere and then he just went and got it back. You know, same thing for his armour. We obviously saw how he got his armour um, in Mandalorian. We don't need to see everything. He saves Fennec Shan's life. She feels indebted to him. He wants his ship back. How that all plays out is sort of comfortably assumed. We don't need to see it. 
we just accept that, okay, it's happened. They all that played out this way, and he ends up getting the ship back, and he ends up Phoenix Shand as, as his lieutenant offside. Fantastic. Perfect. We actually we don't need to see the A, B, C, and D and how it all played out. Having said that, I did like the mission kind of element that here's what we're trying to do, here's what we're trying to accomplish. The heist is the ship. We're trying to get the ship back. So the stakes are pretty clearly defined. You know, the, the objective of the mission is clearly defined. I thought that was good. Um, just some odds and ends. His back to treatment is complete now. Uh, but as Shand asks, um, what about the scars on the inside? Very pertinent question, Fennec. Very, very, very pertinent question. Um, but that was cool because that's the point of a back to thing. You you take the treatment and it heals you up. We saw Luke, obviously, after his uh, Wamper attack. Uh, we saw Vader, obviously, taking um, lots of back to treatment uh, over the course of you know his life post um, post his trip to the uh, beaches of Mustafar. Um, Bib Fortuna. So the big setup, you know, the big moment at the end of Mando season two was that Boba returns to Jabba's palace and he kills Bib Fortuna and he takes the throne. So putting aside the effort he had to go to to get his ship back, I mean, maybe that's why they're light on for manpower, you know, protecting Bib because that Boba had already taken them out. But there was like there was a significant sort of force. There was a significant, you know. Uh, military kind of force protecting the the palace and obviously working for Bib Fortuna as ineffective as he may or may not have been. So it was a curious moment. I, I kind of, I found myself going, oh, had they just already gotten rid of all those guys and that's why there was no one there to kind of protect him? Was that like the whole, you know, was that why it was sort of relatively easy for them to sort of just walk in and kill him, like murder him in cold blood? You know, sort of Boba intimates that Bib had betrayed him, or he can't be trusted, etc. Um, but this is sort of a new Boba Fett that we've been shown across the, the four episodes to that point. And it kind of struck me as just a bit out of character, I don't know, in retrospect, that he would just walk in and shoot him. I sort of thought, oh, wouldn't he? Maybe he would offer him the opportunity to kind of join what he's doing. Like he would at least have that conversation. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that sits with me. Maybe I need to go back and rewatch that last moment. Um, Fennec Shand, odds and ends here. I remain somewhat committed to the idea that she might double-cross him. I just think that that's just some tension that would... I think it would be interesting how it plays out. Does can a leopard change its spots? He has, but can she? And what does that say about his ability to do so? What does that say about his ability to to forge his own new path and be committed to this new way of life, does that give it more credit if he's able to do it but she's not? Does that make that more interesting? Does it make it more meaningful? Is that he's offered her the chance, you know, in consult with him, to let's let's do this the right way, let's correct what we don't like about the way, you know, bounty hunting and whatnot is done. Let's in and criminal elements and underworlds Let's take everything that we've learned from our time doing it, everything that we don't like, every ill about it that we've confronted ourselves, and let's make it better, let's make it right. And he'll be able to do that, but she might not be able to do it. I think it would be an interesting dynamic if she just she just can't. She just can't commit to this new thing. She's just, she's as I said earlier, she's always looking over her shoulder, always suspicious, always angling, always looking to feather her own nest, always looking to you know, take the step up herself at the expense of someone else. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, just ge- geographically, too, I liked 
you know, I always like this. I always like seeing more of like a, an area. So we've got some cool looks at Moss Espa in the previous episodes, the big kind of like drone shots coming into the city, which was nice. And then in this episode, we've got some cool looks at like the surrounds and interiors of Jabba's Palace. You know, these areas that we do know that we have been shown before, but show us something new about them or a new perspective or a new angle of them. You know, an area of them that we haven't ever explored or been shown. So even as little as we see the back door to Jabba's palace as Bobber is uh, considering a raid to, you know, reclaim the Slave One. So it's, you know, um, we get a look inside of the kitchen. Um, yeah, it's, it's small, but it's fun. It's full of little details. You know, once upon a time, this whole big palace was just, it was a big front door, a corridor to a throne room, the throne room, and the pit below. Like, that's all this thing was. Now it's this big sprawling fucking palace. It's, like, properly got some, some scope about it, which is cool. The character design of the cyborg gang obviously featured less prominently this week. We did get a little bit of a look at them. It does look... It's Star Wars-y enough, but it just looks a bit cheap. Like, it does look a bit fan-filmy. It kind of looks like the chief production designer sort of handballed it to the, the next guy who handballed it to the next guy who handballed it to the next guy down the chain and you sort of get this thing that's kind of got the right DNA but just the wrong realisation. Like I said earlier, the, like the Vespa thing, it's not so bad that it ruins anything but it just kind of strikes you for a moment that yeah, it's just not quite right. feels like you've tried to do something a little bit different but it's just, it's like the casino... Um, in, uh, what was the planet? In uh, The Last Jedi. Um, and you're just kind of going, yeah, I'm not saying that something like this shouldn't or couldn't exist in this world, but it just doesn't feel quite nailed on like you would expect it to in, you know, something in a property so big where they are making so many decisions, but they generally get them on the money. This just feels a bit, yeah. Um, I liked when, what do they call it, the mod parlour, where the, the scene where they're saving Fennec Shan, she's being worked on and kind of put back together in that, you know, by a back alley, like, grease monkey. Um, it, it sort of played out, or was sort of scored a little bit like, you know, a car was being souped up for a street, ra- a street race in a Fast and Furious film. Um, and then at the same time, I, I got, like, glimpses of a far less macabre, less crazy version of... You know, in Batman, where Jack Napier is getting the plastic surgery, sort of less nasty than that. But a nice little nod to, like, the tech that was being used to piece her back together um, was sort of like a larger version of that, which was in Luke's hand. You know, I've always loved the shot where, after he gets his hand replaced and they open up the, the little sort of door on the base of his wrist, and he's little sort of pistons firing as he's moving his fingers. Um, it was sort of like a bigger version of that. So, you know, like the motors are responding and they're poking the ends of his fingers. Um, so that was a nice moment. I really enjoyed that, just as a little nod. Um, when they went into Jabba's palace, <laughs> the chef robot uh, was, like, shaping up to attack Boba a la General Grievous with a bunch of knives, and Fennec Shan slit its throat. <laughs> that was a bit strange. Not in a bad way, but it was just sort of like, why is this, ro- this robot, this chef robot's like... The more you think about it, you're like, this chef robot's like, its instinct is to fight. Strange. Fair enough. It's got knives. Yeah, it can do that. Um, and you obviously have the rat catcher robot similarly. Nice little droids. You know, once again, the world is expanding. It's always fun. Um, 
a little bit ratatouille, the kitchen. I don't know if that was another deliberate thing, but there's just something about it that reminded me of that. Just reminded me of ratatouille. Um, Max Rebo, another Max Rebo sighting. That's three from four. Good to see Max again, still there, still playing. He's obviously the house band at that casino. Uh, so Max, back on deck. Good, good. And then lastly, just another line of dialogue that I didn't want to make a big, big deal out of because it wasn't sort of so important. But it was this interesting little sort of jarring bit in a really nice way. When he's sending the banther off, so he and Fennec Shan ride a banther to Jabba's palace, the big sort of backwards hairy elephant, and they ride, uh, they're going to reclaim the slave one, and the rationale is, well, I don't need the banther anymore because either we're going to go in and get the ship back or we're going to go in and die. And as he's, you know, he gets his stuff off the banther and he's getting ready to send it on its way, um, Boba Fett remarks, find other banthers, go make baby banthers. You know, I mentioned earlier, he's been such a loose sketch for so long. He's been so unrefined, this character, as to who he is and what he's like and what his personality is and all that kind of stuff. It's really cool that in kind of four episodes, they've just given us lots lots of big moments that inform who he is and why he is the way he is or who he's trying to become. But then you get this nice little isolated moment of, hey, he's just, a, he's just a, like a nice dude. He's just a cool dude, and he's like, he says quirky, silly things. Go make baby banthers, as he's, you know, like, someone would do that. <laughs> I don't know, I liked it. It was just a really small moment, but it was a moment that I thought meaningfully um, told us yet something new and interesting about this character that really up until this point we don't know anything about. Uh, and that's always important. Uh, so overall, I think I'll give the episode a B+. Plus. Um Episodes like this are tough to kind of be definitive about in the moment because a lot of their success you know, will be determined down the line. You know, If the show takes this backstory and takes this world building and takes this exposition and this consolidating of narrative and turns it into something good, then the episode has done its job. But if it's a bust, if what's coming up next is a bust, you know, then in a retrospective review or rewatch, you know, it'll be less favourable because at the moment you're kind of interested in what this becomes, but if what it becomes isn't really interesting, then you kind of look back and go, oh, yeah, that didn't go anywhere, didn't really go anywhere, did it? Or didn't go anywhere satisfying. But in the moment, um, I thought it was a good watch. I thought it was, you know, for an episode that was a little bit slower, if, you know, we take out obviously the, the couple of the, the action set pieces with the, the Sarlacc uh, and reclaiming the Slave One, which were cool little beats. Um, some more sort of heavy lifting just in terms of setting up how did Bobber, how did his frame of mind get to the place where he is now to inform, obviously, what's going to come next in his response to the Pikes and why did he want to take the throne and all that kind of stuff, which was important, um, not just in terms of informing what had happened, but obviously what happens next. So B+, we'll give it that. Um, we look forward to obviously watching the show unfold and what happens next week and the week after and the week after and seeing where we end up. So as I always say, if you've enjoyed this episode, do get in touch. Let me know what you thought of episode four of the Book of Boba Fett, what you're thinking of the season so far and where you think it might go. Uh, We look forward to chatting with you about that. We look forward to chatting about episode five in a week's time. Goodbye.
Maybe I can help you. I am Boba Fett. <laughs> 